3: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today, of course, we have our analysis of Super Tuesday. Later in the show, we'll speak with Joan Walsh, and we also have D.D. Guttenplan, editor of The Nation, with the magazine's case for Bernie. We start the morning after Super Tuesday with John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for the magazine. John, not a good night for Bernie or for us.
2: Anytime I can get results out of American Samoa into the, into the, <laughs> into the story, I'm, I'm pleased. And, and it, Bloomberg's victory there, uh, his last as a presidential candidate, is, was notable. But, uh, no, look, it, it, Super Tuesday was a day of recognition and surprises. It was also a day that told us something about our politics that we ought to pause and take in. We live in a new age of politics where it is possible to radically alter the direction of a a series of elections across the country. Remember, presidential politics is always about a series of elections in the primary season and in the fall with the Electoral College. It is possible to alter a series of elections in a very short amount of time with a series of lucky breaks, practical advances, And frankly, very well-coordinated moments. And what I mean by that is Joe Biden won a monumental and significant victory in South Carolina on a Saturday. He, on Sunday the next day, uh, he and his people and allies obviously spent a lot of time on the phone and pivoted into a Monday where they basically restructured the race with candidates who had quit or were quitting, including Beto O'Rourke who is very very popular in Texas, Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar. Two of those candidates by the way, literally from states that were doing Super Tuesday voting. They had a Monday night that was kind of a Biden love fest, endorsements, rallies, you know, this this, you know, kind of mounting sense of an energy, if we dare say it, Joe momentum. And oh, no. Um, yeah, yeah. And and That was communicated. And my friend, whether you like it
3: or not, that worked. Well, here's the thing that struck me. Biden and his campaign really didn't do very much of this. There wasn't very much of a... Biden campaign. You know, we've been saying my whole life, I've been saying the ground game is what counts. You've got to do the face to face door to door work. You can't do it with media. You can't Mm -hmm. do it with party bosses. You can't do it with endorsements. Biden won states where he had no paid staff, where he had no ground game, where he'd never even visited. And that rewrites the rules for uh, what it takes to win in America. But it doesn't rewrite all the rules.
2: It doesn't mean that the grassroots organization doesn't matter. It doesn't (laughs) mean that raising money from lots of small donors doesn't matter. These things brought Bernie Sanders to viability, to competitiveness, to a point where he had to deal with the challenge of being the presumed frontrunner in 14 states and and American Samoa uh, that were all voting on the same day. And so... One should not dismiss grassroots organizing and the structural work of, of politics, but what one must understand is these other realities are also in play. Why would we talk about the power of media? Why would we talk about um, the power of of the you know prominent political figures if it wasn't real? Right? It is real, and yeah. these things came together in. What I would suggest is a perfect storm in a, basically a 72-hour period.
3: So the big question for us is, why was that?
2: Because Bernie Sanders scared a lot of people.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> you
2: know, that's, that's the bottom line. I mean, look, he's a presidential candidate who was always sort of written off, right? Always like, bah, Bernie's impossible. In 2016, he actually got a lot of votes from people who might not have voted for him otherwise. But they thought, well, this is, a, this is a really great protest vote. In 2020, as he became a clearly more viable candidate, you had still a lot of resistance. He's seeing tremendous amount of the media in this country basically saying, oh, no, no, can't happen, won't happen. And actually, importantly, a lot of media saying shouldn't happen. Read the New York Times op-ed page. Oh, yeah. It's clear there that he had scared prominent political figures, and he had scared uh, a lot of media folks. And we should not dismiss why they were scared, and we shouldn't necessarily reject it. They were scared because they think a democratic socialist cannot be competitive in a November election, that somebody proposing, in many cases, very bold changes to our political processes, uh, to our economic and social processes in this country, you know, that, that somehow that's just that's not doable. And don't disrespect people who think that. You know, we live in a country where that message is driven home in a lot of places. And frankly, also don't dismiss people who don't want that. Yeah. that, that I mean, and I'm talking genuine, not talking elites. I'm talking people at the grassroots who are like, boy, that's, that sounds like too much, whatever. That's all a part of the reality. It's all a part of the mix. However, what was the reality also until sometime on Monday night, basically, of this last week, what uh, was also a reality was that the moderate lane, if you will, was divided. There were a lot of people going in different ways. And, and I, I would caution, too, that they weren't all folks who were necessarily anti-Bernie Sanders, Right there was a lot of folks out there who were, were like, oh, you know, maybe Sanders, maybe Biden, maybe something else, but then you suddenly got this. This I would argue, but let's try to put a figure on it, John. A billion dollars of free media. I mean, what is it? What is it when you get every front page of every paper in every Super Tuesday state? You get the. Evening news on Monday night, you get all of the cable and then you get the Tuesday morning papers and radio and cable and all that. How much is that worth? It would probably be you know the equivalent of several days of spending by Mike Bloomberg yeah. um, and who didn't get anything from his didn't get much from his pay media although well, he got something I mean it's worthy of note that he got much higher figures than I think he should have but that amount, it just kind of all came together. And I do think that there's a momentum there. Biden people will say, Oh, that momentum is genuine. It's real. It's happening. Biden critics will say, boy, it's, you know, (laughs) man, you sure got a lot of people in the same place in Texas at, at around the same time and Texas being the critical state, but whatever it is, no matter how you, you know, how you feel about it, no matter how you deal with it. I just think that that's what came together there. And the reason that I, emphasize that, is that it's not necessarily the definition of the future. It's not for sure that Joe Biden brings it all together again.
3: So what are the tasks facing Bernie the morning after Super Tuesday?
2: Well, one of the things that people love about Bernie Sanders is the notion that he doesn't just sit around and read polls, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. you know, for 60 years, He's been on the right side of a lot of issues. Not always perfect, but, you know, pretty consistent record. And people like that. They respect that. It, it counts for a lot. But sometimes he should read polls. And the exit polls from every state that's voted so far tell us two things. His issues are incredibly popular. Yes. in State after state after state. Medicare for all. And, and literally described as a government program to replace private insurance, a really very, you know, kind of straightforward, honest question. It wins. It wins big. Green New Deal, very popular. Free education,
3: very popular. Yeah. These
2: things, these are winners,
3: right? How about the fifteen dollar minimum wage? Oh, come on. That's
2: a that's a you know, there's Republicans that are campaigning for that. Yes. Or at least, you know so that's you know, all this stuff. Really, 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 really popular. And yet The guy who actually put a lot of stuff on the agenda, literally advanced it. And certainly these are, in many cases, his signature issues. He's not winning, or he's winning narrowly. And so what is in that poll that tells us something else? Well, it's the electability question. And it's a fascinating thing. And again, I'd say the exit pollsters ask it right. They say, would you prefer a candidate who you agree with on the issues or a candidate who can beat Trump? And guess what? Candidate who can beat Trump. That comes out like a two to one. Yeah. Overwhelmingly ahead. Yeah. Well, on Monday and Tuesday, the last few days there, um, Biden claimed that type. Fairly, unfairly, like it, dislike it. That's what he did. Going forward for Bernie Sanders, he needs to make seventy five percent of his speech, eighty percent of his speech, whatever electability, has got to talk about it. He has to talk about it in deep and fundamental ways. And it isn't just about attacking or criticizing Joe Biden. That's, that's the, you know, kind of political trap, a debate about, you know, oh, this guy's got this in his past, or this guy failed in this, or this guy made this, you know, blah, blah, blah. No, 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 no. It's an affirmative argument that you, for a variety of reasons, are the most electable candidate. And the fact is that Sanders actually has quite a bit to work with there. It's, it's, it's not unreasonable to make that argument. My home state, they did a poll last week where they put all the candidates against Donald Trump. One candidate beat Donald Trump in that poll, and it was Bernie Sanders. So he should take that all, talk about it in deep and fundamental ways, develop a narrative that, that is credible in that, in that zone, and put it forward. You might be surprised where this incredibly unpredictable year, or two years now goes next
3: to conclude here let me ask you about trump trump was has been worried about joe biden from the beginning he was so worried about having to run against joe biden that he got himself impeached trying to get dirt on joe biden could it be that donald trump is right about that that biden is the greatest threat to him
2: Well, in my opinion, Donald Trump hasn't been right about very much. (laughs) True true that. True that. I'm not going to actually jump on that train, if (laughs) if you don't mind. I'm going to suggest that Donald Trump bought into the conventional wisdom that Biden was uh, the likely Democratic nominee, because remember, this is not the first time that Biden's been kind of more of a front-runner, right? He's had several gradations in this campaign. Um, And so, yeah, he got himself in a lot of trouble, and frankly, he should have been impeached and removed from office. But uh, I think that... The deeper reality is this. Donald Trump is desperate for an opponent. He doesn't really care who that opponent is. He just wants to start attacking someone. And so one of the questions that sensible people ought to ask is, A, who do you think he can most effectively attack? And some folks are going to say that's Biden. Some folks are going to say that's Bernie Sanders. And then B, who do you think is best skilled – at changing the narrative, at shifting the dynamic so that when the attack comes, because you know it's coming, they actually can get the American people talking about and thinking about different issues and different ideas. Excellent. Those are the two core questions.
3: Excellent. John Nichols, thanks so much today. Thank you very much. It's good to talk to you. Next up we turn to Joan Walsh, of course she's National Affairs correspondent for The Nation and a political analyst at CNN. Hi Joan. Hi John. Well, the pundits are all saying that the turning point in this historic night was on Saturday when Joe Biden won that blowout in South Carolina, 30-point blowout completely unexpected. And the pundit said there's one reason that Joe Biden won big in South Carolina, and that was because of the endorsement of Jim Clyburn. I had no idea that there was a kingmaker in South Carolina, but now everybody says this is the key to everything that's happened in the last week he's the highest ranking african-american in the house one poll found that 61 percent of democratic voters said Clyburn's endorsement was an important factor in their decision i know you spent a lot of time in south carolina uh, leading up to their primary what did you see of this
4: i think it's exactly right the pundits are almost always wrong but they're they're absolutely right about that to some extent jim Clyburn was a queenmaker in 2016 uh, he had had a falling out with the Clintons in 2008 because they perceived him I don't know if it was correct or not he stayed neutral in that race but they perceived him as favoring Barack Obama Bill Clinton made some you know ill-advised comments about it but by 2016 Clyburn had put that behind him and came out in advance for Hillary Clinton uh, and she won the black vote 86-14 um, in South Carolina, John, I have to say, another part of the equation is I have a lot of respect for Bernie Sanders. He ran a better campaign in South Carolina, reaching African Americans. Uh, his state director was a black woman, but he didn't do much better. And I think he finished with about 14 percent, maybe 12 to 14 um, percent, on Saturday night. So, the, yes, Clyburn has has a lot to do uh, with where the black vote goes especially in a crowded race uh, and especially with with joe biden on life support but you know bernie also lost it
3: and why do you think elizabeth warren didn't do better the argument for her which many of our colleagues at the nation made very eloquently was that while she had pretty much the same issues in proposals as bernie she would have been a stronger candidate because first of all she was a democrat she was younger uh, she would be able to govern better, and because she was a woman, that's that's a pretty good argument. And yet, her campaign is, you know, is about to die. Well,
4: you know, I think honestly, Warren took it from the left, right, and center. You know, we perceive Michael Bloomberg, RIP. Uh, I'm so- very happy that whatever happens with Warren, she her campaign outlasted Bloomberg's. We perceive uh, Michael Bloomberg is coming in. Because Biden was weak, that is true. Uh, because Sanders was rising, that is true. But I think he really hated Elizabeth Warren, and I, you know, I think that she she was really his target. So so she took it from him. She took it uh, since before Saturday in South Carolina, and definitely before Super Tuesday. The, the establishment really coalesced around Biden. I mean, Harry Reid, who'd really been a mentor to Warren and, and wanted her to run for Senate uh, and, and was really reportedly torn between her and Biden, Harry Reid went went in for Biden. So, the, you know, the the centrists went in for Biden and and against Warren. And then finally, you know, our friends on the left, I guess, Warren, Um, miscalculated, thinking that all those people who said, run, Elizabeth, run, and all those people who said, I'll vote for a woman, but just not Hillary Clinton. I I want Elizabeth Warren. She thought they were telling the truth, but they really weren't. And so when she distanced from Bernie a little bit on uh, Medicare for All, she was trashed. When Adi Barkin, the great, great activist who is dying, came out for her, he was trashed. When she, in my opinion, told her truth about Bernie telling her she couldn't win as a woman before they both ran, they flooded her with snake emojis. So the left came for Warren as well. And of course, the media erased her, as I've written repeatedly and talked to you about. So she she certainly made some mistakes, but I think she she wound up having the most enemies in the field and and that that surprised me, and that really hurt her.
3: The most surprising thing to me about this whole event of Super Tuesday is the way it has violated everything we thought we knew about what it took for a campaign to win. We have been saying for you know half of our lifetime it's the ground game it's the face to face yeah. door to door work it's the committed people talking to their neighbors about candidates it's a mistake to throw all this money into tv don't hire the consultants but joe biden won in states where he had no ground game at all Zero. where he had Zero. no paid staff and bernie has had this massive you know volunteer organization and paid staff for and warren oh, too for you know, warren over I, yeah and warren yeah. too for over a year they've been working at this. So uh, what happened to our understanding of how politics works in America?
4: Uh, A couple things. You know, obviously, I feel like you're quoting me back to me because (laughs) I've been saying that. Yes. And and when I, you know, when I've covered the other races that I've covered, covering the rise of Democrats in Virginia, that's all been true, John. It it may be that Bernie and, and Warren, to some extent, were organizing in the wrong places, but The media matters and the media was against both Warren and and Bernie, I would argue. There's not really a Democratic establishment because there was nobody who could clear the field. But when push came to shove, the establishment did coalesce around Biden. But I would also say, just like it was pretty idiotic to count Biden out, everybody out and anoint Bernie, the front runner and the presumptive nominee after three races when he won. Nevada, admittedly, he won by a lot. That was stupid. It's also stupid to count Bernie out now. There's still a long way to go. We still, you know, as we speak, your state of California is still counting votes. It's not likely, but it is possible that when all those votes are counted, you know, Bernie could erase Biden's delegate lead or really narrow it to almost nothing. So we don't want to go too far in the other direction, even though Biden's three-day come back. I mean, he rose, you know, almost as fast as Jesus did, and we've never (laughs) seen that before in American politics. So, you know, it's not nothing. There's a reason we're talking about it. it, but it's not over either.
3: Let's talk about Bloomberg for a minute. It is one of the great satisfactions, as you say, is Bloomberg uh, withdrawing on uh, Wednesday morning. He said uh, six very important words on Wednesday morning. I will work to make Biden president. Actually, it's seven words. By all accounts, he has by far the most sophisticated big data operation in in politics. Uh, How much of a difference is this going to make for Joe Biden, do you think?
4: I think it could make a huge difference. Uh, You know, I I, I have to say, like him or not, and I'm not a huge fan, Michael Bloomberg said he would put that at the service of Bernie Sanders if Bernie was the nominee as well. And though he's endorsed Biden at this point, I, I hope that's still true. Uh, although bernie said he wouldn't accept it which i understand but you know it's got to be all hands on deck uh... against donald trump and and you know bloomberg brings a lot of of data sophistication a lot of digital sophistication um, that that more than more than Bernie or Biden has. So you know, if Bernie's the nominee, I hope he finds a way to uh, accept that. But it, but at any rate, I think it's a big I think it's a big deal for Biden because the existential fear of Trump that made I think I know a lot of people in all the Super Tuesday states who went into Tuesday thinking they were voting for Warren, but voted for Biden. Um, you know, there there's a there's a terror um, that, that is appropriate. Um, I, I wish it hadn't manifested itself for Biden, honestly, but it did. And that's where we are putting that together with with Bloomberg's money and data and digital, you know, could could really cover over some of the very genuine problems with with the Biden operation.
3: So, if you were an advisor to Bernie Sanders this morning, what would you tell him the campaign needs to do now to uh, to regain the lead? Starting let's starting out in Michigan.
4: Well, he won Michigan. Uh, he you know came he came from behind and really surprised uh, Hillary Clinton. So he could do that again. I mean, I think the most important thing I would say is to take your lead from people like your campaign campaign manager. Faz Shakir and uh, Jane Kleeb, a a great supporter from Nebraska, and do not hound Elizabeth Warren out of this race. Stop your people from blaming her for the fact, for, for your losses on Super Tuesday. Just stop it. Act like you want to lead the Democratic Party, not that you want to burn it to the ground. The suburban women who got the House Uh, For Democrats in 2018, they are with the black community. They are powering Joe Biden. Try speaking to them and try having your supporters stop calling them hysterical wine moms. Just. Try turning down the hate and turning up the love. Because I know there are loving people in that campaign. Some of my best friends are among them. But you are not going to win the nomination of a party that you continue to hold in such contempt. So I would say accentuate the positive. Reach out to the black community. Reach out to suburban wine moms. Reach out to even women who don't support you and African-Americans who don't support you. I was very disappointed that he skipped going to Selma in order to campaign in Warren's home state of Massachusetts. Uh, He should have gone to Selma, which is a historic civil rights site, but also the site of a Super Tuesday state. But it was more important, apparently, to go humiliate Elizabeth Warren than to talk to the black community. All that's got to change. And there are people in his campaign who know it.
3: Joan Walsh, reader at TheNation.com. Joan, thanks for talking with us today.
4: Thank you, John.
3: We recorded the following segment on Super Tuesday before any results had been reported. The Nation has endorsed Bernie Sanders for president. For comment, we turn to D.D. D. Guttenplan. He's editor of the magazine. Don, welcome back.
1: Thanks, John. Great to be
3: back. Well, tell us about the thought process that went into this endorsement.
1: Sure. Well, you know, as your listeners will know, the nation has been advocating for both Sanders and Warren for months now uh, because we think they're both genuine progressives and because we we saw a great deal to admire in both of their campaigns. And indeed, I wrote an editorial some weeks ago Advocating for a joint ticket. So what has changed? Well, one thing that's changed is that we've now had uh, the four early state primaries, uh, and we know the shape of the field. And uh, another thing that's changed is that we decided that if we were going to have an impact in endorsing, we wanted to endorse before Super Tuesday, uh, because we wanted to have you know the possibility of shaping people who were still undecided. Uh, we also held a debate here in New York on Monday between Sanders supporters and Warren's supporters at the New School that had in you know, several hundred people in the room, but it had hundreds of thousands of people watching it online. And then we had staff meetings where we discussed this and we had an editorial board meeting here at the nation on Friday. So it's been a long process and where we came out, as you can tell from the headline of the endorsement is that we endorsed Bernie Sanders and his movement. And those last three words are crucial to our thinking in the endorsement and in this election. You know, there was plenty of time for intellectual debate as to who might make a better candidate or president, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. We felt that those were the only two that our readers would be likely to consider because they were both the progressive candidates in this race. But that is not the moment we're in. You know, we're in a moment where Sanders is the front runner he put together a broad-based, multiracial, racial multi-ethnic coalition in Nevada, which included many voters of color. And that's uh, so far a unique achievement in this season, uh, and certainly something that Warren has signally failed to do. So given that the three candidates who have actual plausible pathways to victory and to the nomination are Sanders, Bloomberg, and Biden, Uh, We felt it was time to weigh in on the side of Bernie Sanders and his movement, which is what gives him a pathway to victory and indeed has brought him this far.
3: Let's talk about going into Super Tuesday, what Bernie had already achieved.
1: Bernie demonstrated that you can really wage a viable competitive campaign without relying on wealthy donors, corporate funders or PAC money. And if he'd only done that, he would have changed political history. But he did a lot more than that as we know you know he he shifted the discourse farther left than any other candidate for president since franklin delano roosevelt's second term so that remember in in the obama administration the public option was too far left to be considered now the public option is the refuge of moderates (laughs) And the progressive choice is Medicare for all. But it's not just Medicare for all. It's the Green New Deal. It's free public higher education. It's cancellation of student debt. It's housing as a human right. These are all issues which Bernie Sanders has dragged onto the political agenda.
3: The nation endorsed Bernie four years ago. Uh, Is anything different this time?
1: Well, I think in many ways everything is different this time. (laughs) Four years ago, the question was, do you want four more years of Obama or do you think we should go for something more radical? This time, the question is, who can beat Donald Trump? Yeah. And can you beat Donald Trump by promising four more years of Obama, which is the best that Biden can promise? Uh, and is that promise, first of all, is it credible? And second of all, is it going to really persuade enough voters? You know, didn't we try that with Hillary Clinton? And how do you prove electability? Because, you know, electability is one of those terms that people always throw around when they're basically trying to say, well, yes, but I still prefer this candidate to your candidate. You know, the Democratic way to prove electability is to run for office and get the most votes. And at this point, Bernie Sanders has done that.
3: Where does that leave the Elizabeth Warren supporters who had a perfectly good argument that while she has the same policy goals, she would be better at governing. She, of course, is younger, and it would be great to vote for a woman. Is that debate over now?
1: Well, we don't close the door on that debate. Look, I'm not going to tell anybody who wants to vote for Elizabeth Warren that they shouldn't or that they're wasting their vote. And I'm frankly not going to argue with anybody who thinks that Elizabeth Warren might make a better president than Bernie Sanders. I mean, You know, you can argue both sides of that question. I don't think there's any dispositive way to settle that question, but I think what is different and what is settled is who has appealed to voters successfully. And more than that, who has assembled a movement to carry their campaign through the primary process, through the conventions and to defeat Donald Trump? And on that, I'm afraid there is no more disputing between Sanders and Warren. So the question for Warren supporters at this moment is really the oldest question in politics, which is which side are you on?
3: Well, the nation endorsement says Sanders has two weapons that none of his competitors can match. What are they?
1: One of those weapons is consistency. As we've seen, Joe Biden has been willing to lie about getting arrested uh to help the black freedom struggle in South Africa. He claims he was arrested. He's claimed several times he was arrested after going to see uh Nelson Mandela or to try and help Nelson Mandela, which turns out to be false. But Bernie Sanders was actually arrested in the American black freedom struggle before Joe Biden was old enough to vote. You know, he's been saying as everybody knows, he's been saying the same things for thirty years. And I think in <laughs> in a field where you've seen somebody like Pete Buttigieg who's willing to say one thing one day and another thing the next day, the fact that Sanders hasn't changed his tune is actually an advantage and a great comfort to people because they trust him. So that's one of the weapons. And the other weapon he has is the movement, you know, that he really has brought together this working class movement of women and men of all races, of all faiths and none, who are prepared to stand up and demand economic justice.
3: Well, the nation endorsement highlights Bernie's commitment to expanding the electorate as kind of the the fundamental task of the Democratic Party. But several pundits have pointed to evidence in the last couple of days that while Bernie has gotten the most votes of all the Democratic candidates, The total number of his voters is not expanding compared to four years ago. Michelle Goldberg at the New York Times wrote on Super Tuesday, to prevail in November with Bernie, Democrats would need unheard of rates of youth turnout. Young people, of course, are the least likely to register and vote. And so her conclusion is by nominating Sanders, Democrats would be trading some of the electorate's most reliable voters, she's talking about older suburban moderates, for some of the least reliable young people who haven't voted before, did the nation's endorsers uh, consider this issue?
1: That point of view is based on either a lie or a false premise. I mean, let's start start with the part that simply isn't true. If you look at the, the vote totals in a primary that Bernie Sanders lost in South Carolina, okay? his total went up by 10% over 2016. Whereas Biden in South Carolina got fewer votes than Hillary Clinton got in South Carolina. It, it's true that Bernie's theory of change, as he always says, depends on massive turnout. And it's also true that if he doesn't produce massive turnout, he's not gonna win enough primaries to be the nominee. I mean, that's not something you have to like argue about. You can just watch and it'll either happen or not happen. Right. But it's also true, and it's important to point out that while Bernie's theory of change may be flawed, nobody else has a convincing theory of change. I mean, Biden's theory of change is, despite being tarred with being the servant of the banks and credit card companies, despite being the man who eulogized Strom Thurmond, and despite you know all his many disadvantages that make him a worse candidate than Hillary Clinton – He can run a Clinton-esque campaign and somehow beat Donald Trump because after four years, people were sick of Trump. I mean, (laughs) if you talk about a long shot or a crackpot theory, that seems to me to be a crackpot theory. So sure, Sanders theory of victory has a vulnerability, which is that it it relies on large turnout. I would argue not just on large youth turnout, but for example, large Latinx turnout. Are those people really going to turn out for Mike Bloomberg or for Joe Biden? We shall see.
3: So in the end, what, what is the fundamental question of this election for the nation?
1: We live in an age of state repression and voter suppression. And yet the fundamental question remains, for all of us, the oldest one. Which side are you on? The nation is on the side of hope, not fear. We're on the side of radical change, not retrenchment and retreat. This is an amazing, terrifying exhilarating and potentially empowering moment. And we think that voting for Bernie Sanders is the best way to seize this moment, to endorse his movement, and to move towards justice.
3: Don plan. thanks so much for talking with us today. Always great to have you on the show.
1: Always oh, great to be on, John,
3: thanks. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton, Alan Minsky is our senior producer, Frank Reynolds is our executive producer, Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. For more principled progressive journalism from The Nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners. You can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just $0.60 an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com. And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
0: At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com/purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit
4: Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes.